Down south, they say it's the economy, stupid. Up here, we say it's the economy, eh? And this is Political A Economy Radio, a progressive take on economic issues in Canada and beyond. My name is Michał Rozwodski, and welcome to the show. Today, three guests provide some perspective on the politics and the economics of campaigns to raise the minimum wage and minimum standards, a very live issue in my home province of Ontario. First, I speak with Jonathan Rosenblum, campaign director at the first Fight for 15 at SeaTac Airport just outside Seattle, Washington. Workers there won an immediate increase to $15 via a municipal ordinance in 2015. John is also an author and has recently published Beyond 15, Immigrant Workers, Faith Activists, and the Revival of the Labor Movement with Beacon Press. Next, I move closer to the home and talk to Sheila Block, economist at the Ontario Office of the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. Sheila lays out the context for the successful 15 and Fairness campaign in Ontario. Rounding out the show, economics writer and researcher Nathan Tankus returned to the podcast to discuss the economic arguments in favor of raising the minimum wage. We go beyond the narrow issue of minimum wages to broader challenges to what he calls textbook economics. But first, here's organizer and author Jonathan Rosenblum. You were an organizer at SeaTac Airport. Uh, and SeaTac Municipality, which was the site of really the first fight for 15 in the U.S. What created the conditions for that campaign? And maybe more importantly, how did this campaign translate grievances into this clear set of demands crystallized in this campaign? Well, first of all, Michal, I'd say um, I was fortunate to be the campaign director for what was the SeaTac workers organizing campaign that began in 2011 when the union I was with at the time, the Service Employees Union, the Teamsters Union, community groups came together uh, under this ambitious plan to organize uh, low-wage workers throughout the airport, no matter what jobs they held, baggage handlers, cabin cleaners, wheelchair attendants, aircraft fuelers, and the like. Um, and this is a largely immigrant workforce. Throughout the United States at airports, you'll see largely immigrants filling these positions. And in SeaTac, it was East Africans and Asians and people from Latin America, people who had fled economic privation and wars and all kinds of chaos in their home countries and had landed in the United States and were working very hard at the airport. And what we found is that People were working in these minimum wage jobs um, that had absolutely no hope for uh, for progress, uh, no benefits, uh, no regular hours, continual abuse from supervisors, uh, minimum pay, um, and we we realized very uh, very early on that you couldn't just organize one bargaining unit, one group of or classification of workers at a time. We had to really conceive of a campaign to lift up the entire community, the entire workforce uh, through a dramatic campaign. And I would note these used to be good jobs largely until uh, the airline industry succeeded in getting deregulation passed uh, under Democratic President Jimmy Carter in 1978 and an overwhelmingly Democratic uh, Congress passed deregulation of the airline industry past changes in bankruptcy laws, and those changes allowed airlines over the succeeding decades to bust unions at the airports, uh, break pension agreements, and drive down standards to, uh, to where these were all uh, minimum wage jobs by the time uh, we started working with workers in the community in 2011. And what role did the community uh, and faith groups and sort of the, the broader context play in the CTAC campaign. That seems like that was sort of a key a key to your to the organizing effort. Why was it so important to engage workers? Again, as you said, not just not even just you know in one bargaining unit, but also beyond their work lives as well. Right. One of the key lessons of CTAC is that. We can't build a labor movement just by focusing on wages, uh, hours, and working conditions. That the labor movement needs to be concerned about uh, 
social justice, broadly speaking. And we discovered this uh, early on in 2011 when uh, a group of workers who worked at Hertz Rent-A-Car um, were suspended uh, for exercising their legal right to pray. And these were Muslim workers from East Africa who for years had, had been able to take breaks to go pray. And, um, you know, these are brief breaks, like smoke breaks or bathroom breaks. And management always said, sure, go ahead, just come back to work. Um, and all of a sudden, one day in late September 2011, Hertz management decided to change the rules and they started suspending the workers. And the workers, uh, being Muslim and, and, and being devout uh, and, and committed to praying, uh, all went into the prayer rooms and got suspended. Um, the unions at the time faced really a challenge of, well, how do we confront this? Because we also recognize that Islamophobia is very deeply embedded in our society, unfortunately, and including in our unions among non-Muslim members. And, uh, and the Teamsters Union, which took the lead on this issue because these workers actually belonged to the Teamsters, recognized there would be a backlash, but nonetheless uh, stood with the community, stood with the mosque leaders and, and, and other faith leaders and said, no, the right to pray is a union issue too, um, and uh, led protests outside the Hertz ticket counter, filed lawsuits, um, and ultimately, it took a while, but ultimately uh, won justice for these workers. And what that did is two things. One is uh, the community, the Muslim community, which until then had been skeptical of the union's intentions, at the airport realized that uh, that indeed unions had the interests of the broader community at heart. And secondly, for unions, uh, those of us who were organizers recognized that we can't fight effectively for wages or other improvements in the economic arena if we're not also fighting for the things that are important to workers in their community um, outside of economics. And that really built uh, powerful bonds that carried us through this campaign. And what what was sort of the the end game of this campaign? Maybe recall just the sort of story of how how it ultimately succeeded and what the what the end result was. It, it you, you got an um, like a city ordinance at the SeaTac municipality for for fifteen dollars. Is that what ultimately happened? That's right. We won a ballot initiative that moved wages from about nine thirty two an hour to fifteen dollars immediately. No phase in. Uh, plus paid sick leave, full-time hours if it was available, uh, protection of people's tips, uh, and job security. And this didn't start out as a ballot initiative to improve those standards. This started out and indeed finished up as a union organizing campaign because we said the issue is not just about moving the wage dial at the airport. It was about building power or rebuilding power for the people who make the airport run every single day. Um, and so in early 2013, these airport workers, along with faith and community allies, went to all of their employers. And this is the main airline here is Alaska Airlines. Um, we went there. We also went to all the contractors because the airlines had contracted out these jobs to an assortment of companies over the years. Went to all these companies and the workers said, we have formed unions. And we call on you to sit down and begin bargaining with us. All of the employers said no. Um, and at that point, we said essentially, fine, if you won't agree to sit down and bargain a union contract, then we will go to the voters as we're entitled to under Washington state law with a very, with a very ambitious ballot initiative and will essentially impose a union contract on you. And that's what we did. How do you see some of the lessons you learned there um, in light of sort of the ensuing, uh, you know, an increasingly sort of proliferating and, and in many places increasingly successful Fight for 15 campaigns across the U.S.? Uh, how, does, how do the lessons you've learned fit into what's happened since then and, and what, what does what's happening now say about sort of the state of labor and the labor movement in the U.S.? Well, I'd say the main lesson in SeaTac is that our fight is about power, and we have to keep that front and centered as we engage in these campaigns. And um, it's true that 
the fight for 15 here in the U.S. and also in Canada is inspiring. It's tremendous in that it builds confidence among working people. It relieves some of the most crushing poverty that we have in our society today. And yet we also have to be honest with ourselves and recognize that a $15 an hour minimum wage can't be our end goal. And in fact, is just a drop in the bucket compared to what capital has stolen from working people in this country over the years. Just to give you one example, if we could somehow in a political fantasy today, uh, get the Congress and the White House to adopt an immediate $15 an hour minimum wage nationally. Uh, that would transfer about a trillion and a half dollars into the pockets of our lowest wage workers in the United States. And surely that's a ton of money. Um, but consider that against the fact that just in the 24 months following the official end of the Great Recession, 2009 to 2011, the wealth transfer in this country from most of us to the richest Americans was $6.6 trillion. So that's the amount that transferred away from us in just 24 months. And $15 would only represent a small fraction uh, of getting that money back. So, yes, 15 is a great fight to engage in, but we have to recognize that the inequities that we face in society, whether they're economic or around health care, housing, education, uh, the way people of color are treated by police forces throughout our country, all these inequities stem from a common source, and that is about power inequality between the 1% and the rest of us. And we have to build a movement that addresses power, not just inequality in one of these particular areas. In light of the sort of relationship of both workplace organizing and hitting out at sort of legislative minimum standards, which is where a lot of the sort of Fight for 15 stuff has gone in the U.S. and also our campaign here in Ontario, um, you know, there's been pushback then in the legal in the legal world, like say from uh, you know legislators in Missouri who recently forbid cities to adopt the higher than state level minimum wages and are actually you know taking the minimum wage that was higher back down to you know seven dollars and change whatever it was. How how do campaigns that have been built around sort of legislative and employment standards agendas fight back against against that? Does there need to be a bigger organizing component is there you know that puts it more into the realm of collective bargaining i'm not sure i think this is a you know it's a hard question for parts of the labor movement in the in the u.s well i think you know it's a, it's important Michal, to to look at these fights in the right context and i think all too often you know whether we're in seattle or uh in missouri or ontario you know, there's a tendency for activists to uh, overvalue uh, legislators who, you know, do the right thing and vote to increase the minimum wage. We have to recognize that any victory that our movement wins isn't because of beneficence of the political establishment. It's a concession to our collective power. And what we get in the legislative arena on wage increases or on rent abatement or on any measure of justice is a function directly of our organizing strength, of our collective power in the streets, workers organizing, marching, demonstrating, striking, uh, boycotting, doing the things that demonstrate our power and make it harder for the political and economic elites of our countries and cities uh, to get away with the injustices that we that we suffer with. And so we really have to recognize that anything we get is about our collective power. And we need to expect that the other side is going to push back. And so in Missouri, the political power balance has tilted the other way, and now you see capital trying to reclaim some lost ground. 
the solution is that we've got to get back in the streets and organize. And I know there are sisters and brothers doing that. And it may take some time to recover there, but that's the right step that we need to take. Um, you know, one of the lessons that we've had here in the United States is, you know, when, when Barack Obama was elected in 2008, um, a lot of people who supported him said, great, now we've, we've won, we've, we've, you know, crossed this boundary now into a, a new kind of society, and, and they stopped organizing. Um, and they didn't recognize that we still had a tremendous fight on our hands, and even though we had a president now who promised that we would have universal health care, um, people thought that now we were involved in a legislative process, whereas in fact what we were involved with was a power struggle in society. The other side recognized it, and so that's why they were able to get major concessions in what became the Affordable Care Act and transforming an idea of universal health care into this sort of for-profit system where you still had to buy in and some people couldn't afford it and some people were excluded and and uh, and and it's a, and and what it was was a product really of our power um, any struggle that we're involved with is uh, is is going to be succeed or fail based on our collective power and not based on the wisdom or charisma or leadership of any particular leader in the in the political arena yeah and I, and I think the campaign here in Ontario is, is, is heeding some of those lessons and, and working through some of that, especially as, as there has been a, a sort of legislative victory, um, but how to use that to, to keep pushing rather than, than winding down. Right. So for example, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm somewhat familiar with what's gone on in Ontario, but I know that you've had, you know, strikes of food service workers at universities and other actions and, that more than anything else is what moves the political dial, not uh, because somebody in the Liberal Party wakes up one day and says, hmm, I think I'll improve my reelection chances if I do this thing, right? They're responding to pressure by collective action of workers. And how does that translate into concrete strategies uh, for the labor movement? Uh, and especially sort of in the era of Trump where, you know, one, we can foresee these inequalities getting worse, but also uh, the sort of expression of, of the power of the of the 1%, both economically, but also in terms of policing and all of this, we can foresee that also getting worse. Yeah, I you know, in my book, I talk about the fact that uh, we have to build what what I call a social movement union, and I just call it social justice unionism as well. There's an intentionality to my title, uh, Beyond 15, which says that we really have to, we have to go beyond simply the number um, and look at power. And if we, if we look at power, what that means is we have to build a movement that just in SeaTac went beyond the numbers and reached out to the Muslim community and recognized that the right to pray is every bit as much an issue uh, for people as the right to a fair wage, the right to be treated well at work, that we have to build a movement that looks at rights, not just the stuff we want to bargain in contracts or win through ballot initiatives or through legislation, that the movement has to be about the rights of working people to be able to work in dignity, to be able to live in the community in dignity, and so on. Just to give you one local example, in Seattle, which following the SeaTac victory, uh, the city of Seattle passed uh, a $15 minimum wage, but it's phased in over five to seven years. Um, workers in Seattle who are at the minimum wage have gotten significant pay increases for them over the last three years as this law has been phased in. But I did a brief review of some of the numbers and cost of living, and actually four out of five dollars that that minimum wage worker is now making additionally has gone to pay for increased apartment rents in this city. So we've won significant pay raises for low-wage workers in Seattle, and yet landlords have stolen most of that pay raise. And so 
the union movement can't just be concerned here with how do we raise wages for workers. The movement also has to be concerned with how do we stop the rise in rents. And that's just one example of the union having to think more broadly than just wages, hours, and working conditions. That was organizer and author Jonathan Rosenblum. You can find him at jonathanrosenblum.org. Next, Sheila Block, economist at the CCPA Ontario, about the 15 and Fairness campaign here in this province. So, so let's talk about the minimum wage specifically in the Ontario context. And first, maybe set uh, set a, a bit of a baseline, a bit of the history. What's what's been the history of the minimum wage? in this province in sort of very broad strokes and how does what's happening now with the proposed shift to 15 uh, compare with that? So in the broadest strokes, the minimum wage was frozen for about 10 years, I believe. Um, Then we saw a pretty good organizing campaign that uh, had it increased to $10 an hour. And then what we also saw after that was, was a kind of further uh, organizing campaign that was aimed at a $14 an hour minimum wage. While it wasn't successful there, what it was successful in getting, which was a, a pretty important victory, was getting annual indexation. Uh, and so you would not see another period where the real value of the minimum wage continued to deteriorate. And then over the past couple of years, there's been a... Um, a review of labor legislation um, uh, in Ontario called the Changing Workplace Review. And that was looking both at the Labor Relations Act and at the Employment Standards Act, really with a focus on precarious work and really trying, uh, the objective was to update the legislation to reflect really how the labor market has changed. Um, During that review, the minimum wage was explicitly excluded from that review and that conversation. However, uh, some the organizing continued around the minimum wage, and as a result um, uh, of that organizing, it, it would appear, uh, in quite a surprise, the government, in coming out with the legislation, announced that it would be moving over the next 18 months to a $15 an hour minimum wage. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite surprising and, and quite a yeah quite a shift. What what kind of impact has this campaign had? How, how has it been able to shift the terrain um, in Ontario in terms of political power? And also, what does that say about, you know, where the labor movement is at and where broader sort of workers' issues can come into the political process? Well, I think we've actually seen as a result, we, we've seen kind of great grassroots organizing during this campaign. But we also saw, in my view, uh, some of the best organizing in the labor movement um, over the last, I guess, year or so uh, than I've seen perhaps in my lifetime, um, that we really saw the labor movement kind of moving up and, and working together with um, community groups uh, in solidarity and really um, doing some more creative thinking and, and intellectual work around how does the labor legislation need to be modernized and how do we move away from the Wagner model that was really built on um, you know, an economy and a labor market where you had 10,000 men working in a steel plant that you were trying to organize and move to this, this new economy where you're, people who need the protection of a union are much more likely to be working in the service sector, are much more likely to be racialized, are much more likely to be women, and um, are much more likely to be working in small um, uh, small establishments that really don't lend themselves to that Wagner model uh, well. Yeah, that's actually, that, that leads really well. That's something I wanted to ask you about. If you could just expand on that a bit and, and say sort of, a bit more about how Ontario's economy has changed over time, say over the last, you know, maybe couple decades, and how that, and, and a bit more of the specifics around some of that creative thinking and, and where you think it's it's headed in the right direction. So, so one of the big changes in the Ontario labor market is 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 a, is a collapse in manufacturing, and while we still have a manufacturing sector, between from about two thousand and four on we saw um, 
a, a really sharp drop in employment in that sector. And those were jobs that, in part through unionization, um, had you know paid a living wage, had benefits, had job security, had health and safety committees, had those elements that we think of as, as a good job. Um, but I think it's really important to remember that those jobs didn't start out as good jobs. They were dangerous, low-paid work until um, those jobs were unionized and, and over the decades, really, um, wages and working conditions were improved. Uh, and so that's the kind of big landscape is that we've seen a period of manufacturing collapse, and as a result, we've seen very slow wage growth in Ontario, uh, in particular in the bottom half. So we've, we're seeing this increased inequality where people who are on the top half um, of the income distribution are doing quite well, and people in the bottom half are falling behind or losing ground. And um, as a result of those changes, or one of the one of the reasons for that change, is there has been a drop in in unionization rates um, in the private sector, uh, while unionization in the public sector has kind of held steady. And, and so, the kind of a, a fundamental dilemma facing the labor movement is how do you find a sustainable way for workers in low-wage jobs, in transient workforces, in small workplaces? Uh, how do you find a way for them to effectively both join a union and keep their union? Uh, and and how does the union find effective ways to actually provide um, the kinds of servicing and support that people need in those, uh, in those workplaces? Um, and so there has been, both through kind of academics, labor lawyers, leadership of the union, some really interesting conversations that have happened around a move to broader-based bargaining, move to different models of representation, and um, and ways to to kind of help the labor movement both kind of adjust to the 21st century labor market and and, and frankly, in some ways, survive. Um, and so, you know, one could wish that this conversation had happened five years ago, but the fact that it was happening and the fact that there was there was there was an openness to that discussion uh, among both activists and leaders, um, I found really heartening. And I think there are some really good ideas out there. Unfortunately, um, I think anyone who started this or perhaps all of us who who started this this conversation or were involved in it, we're looking for a kind of silver bullet that would say, okay, this is the new model, this is the equivalent to the Wagner Act, this is how we um, this is how we need to approach it. And I think we found out because of the different um, ways in which work is organized that there isn't one single solution there that there are going to have to be multiple solutions. And I, and I think they are kind of still in development. Yeah, and I guess that's where really one of those, only one of those is this push to raise the floor, both in terms of the wage and working conditions through, through legislation, raising minimum standards. But that's sort of just part of that bigger conversation. Yeah, so, so raising the floor and raising minimum standards are really important. Um, however, those rights, if they aren't enforced, have, uh, have, will have no positive impact. And really the best way to enforce that those rights is to be represented by a union. And it's through that kind of collective action that both you have the protection to, um, to complain if those rights are being violated. That's how you get the knowledge to know whether your rights are being violated. And that's how you kind of pool the resources so that um, you can be represented by a lawyer if need be or provide the training that a steward would need to, to provide that protection. So, so to go into each and every workplace in that way, uh, really the representation by union is the best way for that enforcement. So I think that's really improving minimum standards help people who are unorganized they help people who are organized in low-wage work because it raises the standard for everybody um, and reduces the impact of non-union competition. Um, but the other part of that solution and the, that's, that's not there is, is really 
how do you expand, how do you make it easier for someone who wants to join a union to join it? And there are actually some steps. There is some progress in Bill 148. But, um, but there isn't that kind of breakthrough that, that you would have hoped for at the beginning of the process. And one of the really interesting things that I think would have been very concrete progress was that the advisors recommended uh, a change in the, in, in the legislation around franchises. Um, and I think that would have been a really concrete move that could have been built in, built on. Uh, unfortunately, that, that did not make it into the legislation. Maybe just a, just a couple last questions going back to, uh, to the minimum wage itself, to the $15 and, um, and the minimum standards, just because I know this is something you've looked at a bit too. Uh, just who, who will it impact in Ontario and, and what sort of the, what does the low wage workforce look like and who's, who's going to benefit? So, so the low wage workforce is female, it's female, it's racialized, and it's, um, uh, and it's recent immigrants to a large extent. Um, and so uh, recent work by my colleague David McDonald, who looked at, at kind of this year's numbers, um, showed that a minimum wage increase would have a disproportionately positive impact on uh, women, on workers who are recent immigrants. Um, and he also dove into some of the numbers in in uh, an important and interesting way, I think. And he showed that if you are a temporary contract um, or term employee or a seasonal employee or a casual employee, so those precarious kinds of employment relationships, you're more likely to be working for less than $15 an hour and therefore you're, you're more likely than the total population to be able to uh, to benefit from this increase to the min- increase to the minimum wage, and so that that I thought was really important in terms of trying to address precarious work. That those people who are in those more precarious work relationships are more likely to get an increase. Similarly, he dove into the numbers that looked at involuntary part-time work. So people who were working part-time but had I but had identified that they needed to do this either because of an illness or disability because um, of family responsibilities or because they couldn't have full-time work. And again, this group of people were much more likely than the average to benefit from the increase in the minimum wage. Um, And so if you're trying to have a policy that reduces inequality, reduces income inequality, um, and actually has employers share in the cost, increasing in the minimum wage is a really effective way to do that. Looking at that flip side, and, and that cost sharing, what's the sort of impact on business and specifically Ontario? What, you know, is this sort of sectoral thing? And we hear a lot of griping from the chambers of commerce and all these people, but what's, what's the real impact of a policy like this on them? So, so one, of the, one of the impacts is, is that the minimum wage issue is actually largely a big business I- issue. Those mom and pop uh, stores um, that are brought out as the poster children, um, for this policy actually constitute about 23% of um, employees who work uh, uh, for $15 an hour or less. And really, almost 50% of people who are working for less than $15 an hour in Ontario are working for companies with more than 500 employees. So an increase in the minimum wage is a big business issue. And it's really clear that workers who work for big businesses need a raise and big businesses can afford to give them one. Um, in terms of looking at the, the kind of overall economic literature, it's really clear that um, despite the opinion research and despite, um, uh, despite people's anecdotal evidence or the maybe even very legitimate fears of businesses, um, the literature over the last 20 years has been very clear that an increase in minimum wages does not, in fact, have a major negative impact on employment. It doesn't really have a positive impact on employment. It really um, does not have those kinds of impacts that are feared. Uh, and that's that's a, a broad consensus on that and, and uh, something that's like quite been ignored in the debate recently uh, in terms of the business lobby groups really kind of bringing those fears forward. Yeah, I, th- I, I hear that you're going to be presenting, so hopefully that, uh, 
this point of view will get at least a bit of a hearing. Yep, I'm looking forward to that. That was economist Sheila Block on the Fight for 15 in Ontario. Next, the third and final guest, Nathan Tankis, on the economics of the $15 minimum wage and challenges to textbook economics. Let's, let's start with some of the basics. Uh, in short, what's, what is some of the economic evidence in favor of raising the minimum wage or some of the evidence that counters you know, the simplistic narratives that we often hear on this issue? Uh, so I think the, the first clear point, uh, the first clear thing to point to is that we have a, a ton of evidence that uh, raising the minimum wage uh, in, uh, increases wages tremendously uh, on the low end, that each of, there is a straightforward effect where you raise uh, the minimum wage, the minimum wage rate that you, uh, that you can pay people on an hourly basis, and indeed how much that they are paid. And that second of all, there isn't much of an effect on, you know, job loss, even loss of hours, and that even like and and the and the crucial point about uh, working less hours is that if you work five less hours, but your wage rate is double, you're still making a lot more than you were beforehand, and hey, you're also working less. So it's not like we're in the situation where people are not able to make ends meet because uh, they've, they've lost so many hours that the increase in the wage rate doesn't compensate. In, in, most, in most situations, and most of the evidence that we've seen from minimum wage rate changes in uh, Seattle, you know, historical evidence from Connecticut and New Jersey, so on and so forth, there is no question that there is a major benefit. And in fact, the only reasons really to think that there is a tremendous downside are reasons from textbook economics that haven't really shown up as being, as being valid. And all the all arguments based on uh, textbook economics are, well, yes, we haven't seen evidence for the textbook theories yet, but if you raise the minimum wage enough, we'll eventually hit the <laughs> point where 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 the textbooks become relevant, which is just you know an, an unprovable argument. That's exactly the point. You could just keep going, and and you could make that argument at at any level, even if you've shown success the whole time. Uh, I think that's a good point. I mean, there's the, you know, if someone has to work three jobs at a total of sixty hours a week to get above the poverty line, it's much better if they can just work one at forty and get above the same poverty line. Right? Yeah, I mean, time. To, being poor isn't just about lack of money. It's also about lack of time. I mean, the, the Levy Institute does excellent studies about time use and time poverty uh, in developing countries in the United States. And that this is you know, a, a crucial issue that, you know, for a lot of people, if they could meet their monthly expenses uh, working less hours, it'd be crucial in terms of the other things that they need to do in their lives, whether it's taking care of children, tasks around the house, you know, a more equitable distribution of housework. All these things are 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 reliant on on not having to work as many hours. And that, and that to, to the extent we see people working less hours, it seems like they need less hours to live uh, when wage rates change, rather than they're necessarily being forced uh, to take less hours. And even if they are, they're still they're they're still coming out way ahead with a with with major minimum wage rate changes. Yeah, I think that's an important. Way. I, I think and I think that gets lost sometimes that you know the a lot of the other issues like the job loss, like other things, um, which the studies do show are completely minimal at worst, take up a lot of the airtime and the fact that you know some people are going to get a thirty percent increase in incomes and be able to work less, like these sort of broad gains in some ways get sidelined. It's it's an interesting fact of the debate. And I think it's, you know, partly because it's kind of, you know, driven by the rights kind of frame on these things. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to come back to what you said and, and you know, and really make this the meat of the interview about the textbook picture, as you called it, and really get at some of that. I mean, in general, and it's it's even been the mainstream that's in economics that's been making this argument is that this sort of simplistic picture 
uh, of supply and demand that students learn in, you know, Econ 101 doesn't apply to the labor market. Yeah. What's what's behind that? Why why not? Can you sort of explain that in in, you know, relatively uh, relatable terms? So, I mean, there's two angles you can take to this. You can take first the perspective of like what what a mainstream economist would say, what what are the factors that are making this textbook thing not apply. I mean, there's sort of a joke that goes around about, you know, economic theory that, you know, any, you know, any simple conclusion from economic theory is contradicted by a somewhat more complex model. And, uh, and, and I think this is, this is a key example where uh, one example that, that, that people point to is what's called efficiency wages. The idea that, uh, when they, there's a certain wage rates that you can pay people that you actually get more, uh, either whether it's productivity or you, they're less likely to leave that job. And so you don't have to pay the cost of hiring a new person, which is called turnover. Um, whether the, um, the, you know, there's like what we're called learning by doing, uh, there's just, you know, motivational factors that there's all these series of benefits that are either directly affects productivity or don't directly affect productivity that sort of will offset it. Uh, another thing is that is, is that those traditional textbook models are based on this concept of perfect competition, which, you know, even from a mainstream point of view, can be seen as unrealistic, and thus you might say that actually there's uh, monopolistic competition or imperfect competition such that, you know, employers have unequal bargaining power, and thus, you know, minimum wage balances out the unequal bargaining power that employers have, and that, and so that you, and, and since you're since you have this one imperfection, this other imperfection, quote unquote, the minimum wage is sort of balancing out and getting you to a, a better a, a better position. Uh, the second point of view is the point of view that saying that the mainstream theory isn't applicable in the first place. It's neither a perfect competition or imperfect competition. There's sort of you know quote unquote real competition, and that simply that there's there's no a priori reason if you don't if you're not really well wedded to mainstream theory and especially mainstream textbook theory to think that minimum wage would have a big effect on job losses. Um, you can make sort of a, a non-neoclassical argument for how uh, potentially regulations of work conditions or wages could affect job loss. If, for example, we were an economy of a century ago where most tr- jobs were in tradable goods, like, you know, the, the paradigmatic, you know, a New York shirtwaist uh, shirtwaist factory, where the where the where the shirtwaists are being sold internationally. Well, if there's producers around the country and around the world, changing the minimum wage in New York uh, might raising those wages where those people are being paid minimum wage or sub minimum wage might uh, cut into the company's profits because they can't simply raise prices because they're in international competition. The weird thing about this sort of non-neoclassical argument or not necessarily neoclassical argument, mainstream economic theory argument, is that people on the low end of the wage scale are predominantly working jobs that are, you know, the complete opposite of that. You know, McDonald's, the, the, the like the kind of most obvious example of what we think of when we think of a minimum wage job. When people talk about, oh, you're going to have a minimum wage job when you grow up, if you don't step up, they, they, what they say is you're going to have to learn how to say, uh, uh, do you want fries with that? And that job, by definition, is completely localized. And, you know, we have plenty of uh, pricing evidence. So the, latest, the forthcoming example is the great Truman Bewley at Yale's uh, interview of study of pricing where, you know, where he gets straightforwardly told by, you know, local restaurant, uh, local restaurateurs that, you know, in places where there's a regularly increasing minimum wage, they simply adjust prices to compensate for, for the adjustment in the minimum wage. And that's something that they do on a yearly basis. And it, and it's completely passed on in the prices and, they feel comfortable passing on prices because they know it's a quote unquote cost pressure that every other business that every other 
you know, fast food restaurant business is also facing. So, you know, from even in a situation where you might, where you, where you might have some non-textbook argument for big uh, job losses from increasing the minimum wage, we're in the opposite of that situation. We're economies are now getting essentially more and more closed because you know, services are becoming more important. And, you know, ironically, the, all the arguments, whether it's NAFTA or, you know, just, you know, automation, manufacturing employment, tradable employment is collapsing. And all we're left with, the advantage of that is that you have much more localized labor conditions that we can regulate through things like the minimum wage. Yeah, and I guess this, this feeds into, a, you know, a kind of, maybe not Keynesian, but the kind of, you know, classical kind of demand boost argument behind it. Um, and I know it's something that, you know, in Ontario where we're hoping for an increase to $15 within a couple of years, uh, we've seen a doubling in percentage terms of minimum wage jobs over a couple of decades without really huge increases in, in the wage. So that, you know, the it's not that people are becoming minimum wage workers because the minimum wage is going up, but they're just becoming minimum wage workers because, you know, the, the economy is kind of polarizing uh, and we're getting a much more of a low wage economy. So in, in that kind of situation, combined with with sort of, you know, a service heavy economy, that seems to be, you know, a pretty no brainer argument that you're just going to see an increase in aggregate demand from this. Yeah, no, I agree. I think there probably will be aggregate demand effects um, but I don't. I actually don't think that the the argument for raising the minimum wage really relies on us expecting a, a big boost in sales. I think that that simply that simply you know the fact that wages for these people will be higher, and you know you know even with you know the consideration of the fact that they're also buying the goods that they're producing. And so, you know, the increase in prices, you know, has some reversing impact on their wages, their quote-unquote real wages. Um, There's still people on the low end of the wage scale are still enormously net benefiting of it. I mean, the the, the latest study, which I think is like the uh, the best out there, is the study from uh, Aaron Dubay. Right, this at is the family, family incomes one. Yeah, the minimum wages and the distribution of family income, which shows uh, essentially, you know, the effect minimum wage has on you know long-term lowering uh, the non-elderly poverty rate, which they show very substantial effects, um, even for a not that tremendous increase in the minimum wage, and that 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 that's simply the strength the strength of the argument that. You know, these wages will directly rise you know, lower non-elderly poverty rate. And yes, there'll be some, there'll probably be some notional, you know, redistribution of real wages from people on the high end of the wage scale. But from a left-wing point of view, the, the compression of wages is, of wage inequality is a positive thing. And that that's not actually an argument against raising the minimum wage. And it's also, you know, not an argument that you could really politically make, you know, that, you know, people yeah. on the people, people well-paid people are going to are, are going to have their real wages fall if we raise the minimum wage too much. It's not an argument that's going to be convincing. I mean, there's a reason why the, the job loss narrative is so popular. It's because it, it's the only one you can only really say this is actually going to hurt the people that it's supposed to help if you really want to you know, save face politically in fighting off these kinds of things. And that's what I meant when I initially said that this is, you know, a right-wing frame in the sense that this is the only one that kind of fits into this, you know, in, in essence, a kind of concern trolling, concern trolling frame because everything else people would be like, yeah, that's fine. Sure. You know, my the top manager is going to be making relatively not as much. It's not that much of a problem. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean, the whole point of textbook economics is to tell liberal and left-wing-oriented people that their 
common their common sense, their intuitions are dumb and wrong, and actually, you know, raising the minimum wage actually hurts poor people. You know, you know, in, improving welfare benefits actually hurts poor people. You know, providing single payer, providing health care actually is going to hurt them. I mean, this kind of well, actually, concern trolling, you know, argument where you say that, you know, where where you say things aren't actually, you know, as obvious as you, as you think they are. That's the whole point of this whole ideological apparatus, because otherwise you're just left with people doing intuitive things like, hey, maybe we should, you know, raise uh, marginal income tax rates so that eventually there's a maximum income. Why don't we, you know, increase uh, state taxes? Why don't we increase the minimum wage? Why don't we, you know, make labor law more favorable to unions? I mean, all these things are commonsensical things about improving the state of the world from an ordinary person's perspective that you, the only way you can defeat that sort of intuition is by creating this alternative apparatus, which either implants a different set of intuitions or tells people not to trust their intuitions. We're running out of time, but I want to I want to close with one thing and take that observation and maybe generalize it a bit. What do you think is the role then of sort of left economics heterodox economics, given that given that that's sort of a political role that that you know that the textbook kind of science plays? Well, I think when it comes to policy debates, it's crucial that you have. Uh, a ready-made counter-narrative and ability to attack uh, what they've cooked up, whether it's a textbook argument or whether it's some kind of more sophisticated counterintuitive argument for why this popular progressive policy won't work, that you have to be able to respond to those things, but you also have to start constructing other narratives. I mean, it's not enough to simply say, no, the textbook doesn't make sense in the minimum wage. We actually do have to study how businesses set prices, how they make investment decisions. Um, that these these are these are these are crucial things in terms of constructing, you know, an alternative theory and be able to present a coherent narrative about how business work, how uh, income and income inequality and wealth inequality works. That I mean, part of the difficulty of of for left economists is doing is trying to do both or one, uh, at once and balancing which one is a more productive use of your time at any given moment. That was economics writer and researcher Nathan Tankus on the economics of the $15 minimum wage. And that's all for this week. Talk to you again soon.